From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, we'll speak with one of my heroes, Father Greg Boyle, the founder of Homeboy Industries. It's the largest gang intervention, rehabilitation, and reentry program on the planet. He's got a new book out now. It's about the power of extravagant tenderness, and it's called The Whole Language. First up, Republican efforts to ban teaching about black Americans' place in our history. Legislation proposed in 27 states would prohibit teaching the 1619 Project, which has just published a book offering what the authors call a new origin story about the United States. We'll talk about that battle and the book with one of the contributors, historian Martha Jones. That's coming up in a minute. We want to talk about how the legacy of slavery has shaped American politics and society today. That's the subject of the 1619 Project. You may remember it began as a special issue of the New York Times Magazine on the 400th anniversary of the first enslaved Africans arriving in America, in Virginia. The idea quickly became the focus of challenge and then of attack as Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas introduced a bill in Congress, he called it the Saving American History Act, which would prohibit federal funds from being made available to teach the 1619 Project curriculum in schools. And then President Donald Trump denounced the 1619 Project as, quote, toxic propaganda and appointed a commission to promote what he called patriotic education focused on the legacy of 1776. Now the 1619 Project has published a book expanding the original 10 essays to 19, and the new book also includes more poetry and fiction and some wonderful photography. The project was created by Nicole Hannah-Jones, an award-winning journalist and recipient of a MacArthur Genius Grant. She's also the lead editor of the new book, published this week, which is called The 1619 Project, A New Origin Story. For more on that, we turn to one of the contributors to the new book, Martha Jones. She's an award-winning historian who writes about how Black Americans have shaped democracy in the United States. She's professor of history at Johns Hopkins, author of the books Birthright Citizens, A History of Race and Rights in Antebellum America, and more recently, Vanguard, How Black Women Broke Barriers, Won the Vote, and Insisted on Equality for All. She's written for the New York Times, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, and other places. We reached her today in Baltimore. Martha Jones, welcome to the program. Thanks very much for having me. Well, if we think of the origins of the United States lying not in 1776, not with the Declaration of Independence and the Revolution, but rather in the arrival of the first enslaved Africans in Virginia 150 years before that, in 1619, what does that change in our understanding of American history? Part of how I understand the 1619 Project is precisely a grand thought experiment, um, in part contributed to by historians, but also including journalists and many creative writers, um, all of which explore what it means to recenter U.S. history around the experiences, the perspectives, and the profound troubles of people of African descent in North America. 
Well, the 1619 Project is not just a big book of essays. It's also a set of educational materials for schools put together not by the New York Times, uh, but by the Pulitzer Center. And the materials are intended, they insist, to supplement, not replace, the standard history and social studies uh, curriculums. Uh, thousands of teachers in all 50 states are now using the 1619 Project. This, was, of course, was the target of Tom Cotton's bill, which I'm happy to say died in Congress. But then 27 state legislatures controlled by Republicans have introduced similar legislation proposing to ban the teaching of what they call divisive concepts. What do you think about teaching what they call divisive concepts in high schools? You know, I um, have the the honor, um, not infrequently, to talk with both K through 12 educators and their students. And what I hear is not um, a fear or resistance. What I hear from young people in particular is, why have you kept this history from us for so long? And um, that is a hard and humbling question, I think, for those of us who are in the business of history. But it is one that I think um, poses a uh, an urgent challenge to us. From educators, what I hear is, why didn't I learn this in school? And here is a moment to remember that many of us received educations that bear the mark of American apartheid, that bear the mark of Jim Crow um, in our textbooks, in our curriculum, and more. And so here, I think, um, we have this opportunity to extend a kind of compassion to all of us, and I include myself among those who were just not educated um, in the ways that we recognize we want and need to have been in the 21st century. And so it is a tragedy to imagine that um, state censorship is going to keep these materials out of classrooms. But of course, the work of the Pulitzer Center um, and more um, is working to make sure that those materials continue to be accessible, even if it is not through the auspices of public school systems. Well, probably the part of the 1619 Project that's been debated the most among historians has been about 1776 and the American Revolution, the ways in which the fight for American independence from Britain was also a fight to preserve slavery for Black people. That's a shocking idea to a lot of people, but it's something that historians have been studying and debating for a while now. What do you think the debate tells us about where we are now when it comes to teaching, researching, and writing about the founding? I think there are two things to say about that. The first is that the 21st century is not the first time in which this country has debated um, the profound question of our origins. It's not the first time as a nation we've debated um, how to think about um, the fact and the legacies of slavery and anti-Black racism. So we are in the latest chapter, if you will, in a longer debate. And at the same time, that debate, the one we're in today, is unfolding in a political context in which history um, is being used as political fodder, um, which is to say, um, very quickly we get 
at quite a distance from the archives, from the historiography, the kinds of things that you and I very much root our work in. And we understand that once again, history becomes a tool, it becomes an implement for um, political debate. And in this moment, I think it's a debate precisely over who should steer this nation's future, what sorts of ideas should animate it. And we see that as we tussle over whose history is the history. Of course, there isn't ever a well-settled answer to that sort of question at all. That's a political question, not a historian's question. Part of the debate over the 1619 Project has been about the place of slavery in the Constitution. The word slavery never appears in the Constitution. That took a lot of work by anti-slavery delegates, but slavery is there nevertheless in several places. And we're aware right, that the drafters of that constitution are self-conscious in their um, uh, omission of the term slave or slavery. There are many euphemisms when we teach the constitution that it's necessary to unpack. Um, but of course, we recognize that fugitive slave um, provisions, um, the three-fifths clause, um, that there are aspects of this constitution that are admit how um, aware and how much consideration the, found, the framers are giving to the issue of slavery. Uh, yes, just to spell that out a bit, the Founding Fathers included a clause in the Constitution that slaves who escaped to free states, fugitives, had to be sent back to the South if captured in the North. This made slavery a national institution. The Founding Fathers also put into the Constitution a provision that the slave trade could continue for 20 more years. They called it the importation of persons. Congress then banned the slave trade in 1807. And of course, the three-fifths clause, they also agreed that slaves could be counted for the purposes of apportionments of seats to the House of Representatives. At the same time, um, I'm a legal historian who has to remind my students that even a document as consequential as a constitution is only a text until the contests um, in lived experience animate it. And so when I teach the constitution, I teach it alongside uh, figures like Elizabeth Freeman, enslaved in Western Massachusetts in the revolutionary era, who will use the Massachusetts state constitution to not only challenge her own enslavement, but the institution of slavery in the state of Massachusetts. There is the history of the constitution um, when, in that example, an enslaved woman comes to a court and asks for an interpretation um, that transforms in her own life, but the future of slavery in the state of Massachusetts. That is um, the Constitution as we know it as a living document. Well, your work asks questions about race and racism in the Constitution. Tell us about that. One of the questions um, that I've tried to answer is, um, how have Black Americans figured before the Constitution when it comes to the question of citizenship? And one of the things um, good students of the, of the Constitution know is that it is almost silent about who, in fact, is a citizen of the United States. There are references to citizens, yes, in the document, but never is there a definition. And that lapse 
right? That chasm really in the Constitution means that Black Americans, even those who have um, managed to free themselves from the bonds of enslavement, even those folks are faced with a dilemma because the Constitution is unclear about where they stand. You write about Black activists who fought for citizenship in antebellum America. What was their argument? There are a couple of arguments, um, and these are folks who are really inventing right, the notion of citizenship in real time. They read the text of the Constitution, and they discover, for example, that the president of the United States must be a natural-born citizen of the United States. And they say, I think reasonably, they argue, if the president is a national, natural-born citizen, there must be such a category. And why aren't we also natural-born citizens? There's no color line in the Constitution, they importantly point out. At the same time, Black Americans are going to um, speak importantly about their labor, um, much of it uncompensated and unrequited um, in the early United States, as another claim to citizenship, another theory of what citizenship might be in the U.S. Ultimately, they fix on the idea of birthright something familiar to us even as 21st century Americans, and they begin to promote this notion that birth in the United States connotes citizenship in the United States, and they will press for many decades on this idea um, until finally the 14th Amendment becomes part of the Constitution in 1868. Wow, we just we just we just went through a, a, a whole swath of time, but um, I hope the point is clear. So the 14th Amendment established birthright citizenship. 150 years later, Donald Trump uh, won the presidential election, and he said he wanted to end birthright citizenship. He said it was, quote, frankly ridiculous, close quote. So in the last four or five years, we've had a new debate about what black Americans brought to the Constitution after the Civil War. Trump thought maybe he could issue an executive order that would end birthright citizenship. That didn't work. President Trump um, never attempts the executive order that would abrogate the 14th Amendment, so we'll never know how that would have gone. But that doesn't mean that um, he and members of Congress did not continue to think concertedly about this question. And there has been in Congress um, each year since 2009 proposed um, what is called the Birthright Citizenship Act, which would look to use the power of Congress to constrain the 14th Amendment and its interpretation and to deprive those children born in the United States of non-citizen parents, deprive them of birthright citizenship's privileges. I would say that that debate is not closed, even as the Trump administration is behind us. And when we return to policy around immigration, um, I expect that birthright citizenship will still be a question on the table. Well, let's talk about the rest of the book. There's these key chapters on 1619 as the beginning and 1776 and the Constitution of 1789. There's your work about how black Americans won birthright citizenship rights after the Civil War and the 14th Amendment. What other chapters of the book did you think were especially notable or, or significant or, or original? I think one of the chapters that might surprise readers in a welcome sense is that by historian Taya Miles, 
um, titled Dispossession. Here, um, Miles brings to the readers of the 1619 Project her long-standing intervention, which is one that it's, it insists on how Native history and African-American history are profoundly intertwined. Um, and here she takes us through everything from the um, intertwined issues of land dispossession um, and the extension and the, the um, longevity of slavery and the reliance upon enslaved labor to develop and cultivate that land that Native people have been dispossessed from. But she also reminds us as Native Americans face dispossession, um, there are those among them who, under the moniker of civilizing take up the holding of people of African descent as slaves um, in early America. So these are chapters that remind us that our histories aren't silos. But Miles makes the point, of course, that until today, the question of land, of dispossession, of who is a citizen not only of the United States, but of sovereign Native nations um, are live questions and are unchallenged by the um, persistence of anti-Black racism. And so her chapter for me speaks to a lesser known chapter in the past, but also to really pertinent questions in our present. So now we have this new book by the 1619 Project. For historians, it's likely to lead to new challenges, new debates. Do you think that more conflict and strife around the central issues of American history is something to be regretted? Should we try to avoid that? Is a new consensus our goal here? It's not my goal. <laughs> and, and I'm someone who strives in a way to recognize not only um, the ways in which debate is useful, productive, essential, I would argue, for producing better history. But as important, it opens our eyes to the important degree to which conflict is the story of American democracy. And when we, as the 1619 Project has done so powerfully, place, for example, Black Americans at the center of our narratives, it is possible to gloss American history as the history of um, consensus or the history of um, a Whiggish arc of progress. Um, and that, to me, is the essence of American democracy, which means, um, should we persist, um, we will do so through the kind of contest, through the kind of strife, through the kind of disagreement that has always uh, characterized this project. And it will not be limited to the uh, place um, or the role of Black Americans, um, but there are many communities of Americans um, still to be fully woven into our understanding of the past and, frankly, our capacity um, as a country into the future. Martha Jones, she's one of the contributors to the 1619 Project, the book based on the project created by Nicole Hannah-Jones and the New York Times Magazine. Martha, thank you for talking with us today. Thank you so much, John. Now it's time to talk with the founder of Homeboy Industries, Father Gregory Boyle. 30 years ago, he started persuading people that in a world of systematic poverty and violence, 
nothing stops a bullet like a job. Father Greg is an American Jesuit priest. Homeboy Industries is the largest gang intervention, rehabilitation, and reentry program on the planet. Has offices in L.A. near downtown. He's won lots of awards. Now he's written a third book. It's about the power of extravagant tenderness, and it's called The Whole Language. It's an honor and a pleasure to say, Father Greg, welcome back. It's good to be with you, John. Well, the pandemic has been hard on everybody. It must have been especially tough on the people you work with. Yeah, I mean, I think initially, certainly when we were on pretty full lockdown and everybody had to do therapy and classes via Zoom, which was a challenge for everybody, including, you know, um, tutoring and GED prep and anger management and all that stuff. But the mayor uh, declared us an essential organization pretty early on. And so we uh, pivoted very quickly to turn our restaurant and bakery uh, into, uh, you know, we, we fed, you know, homeless folks and we address food insecurity for seniors. And, and so that became quite the going operation that utilized all our folks. So, but we've been pretty up and running for, uh, I want to say a year now, probably. Right. I'm sure that some of your people died during, during the pandemic. And you write in your new book, The Whole Language, everything stops when there is grieving to be done and that you lean into the grief. Tell us about that. Well, you know, I, I think in probably in my introduction of, to the book where I talk about, you know, identity, you know, like things get upended, you know. So for me, you know, it, it's I'm on the road, I'm giving talks, I'm in every detention facility in Los Angeles County doing services as a priest and then interacting with homies face to face. And then all of a sudden that kind of ends. And there's a grieving to be done to that. And so you lean in and, and, and then you're curious about it and then you savor it and then you relish it. And then somehow you're trying to get to joy in it. And, and that kind of what is what happens. But grieving isn't just about folks dying. It's also about letting go of the shedding of some kind of layers of how you see yourself and how you engage with the world. So that happened as well, you know, but uh, quite apart from that, I, I have three COVID funerals kind of um, coming up, you know, and trying to kind of juggle those. <laughs> and I had three double funerals from COVID in, during the course of this. So, you know, there's a lot, a lot there's of lot. people dying. You, you open your new book, The Whole Language, writing that the pandemic showed that inequality is not a defect in the system. So what is it? Yeah, I said it's not a defect in the system. It is the system. So it is uh, by design kind of how it, how it works. And so, you know, it's not like people are selfish. I don't think people are, but people are self-absorbed. So a lot of times you have to turn things inside out and it's how you, you know, look at things that, that matters. And, and so, so you want to be able to, um, you know, address the system by, by a counter system. We always think that uh, doing systemic change is like lifting up the hood of something and then asking for a wrench, you know, but it's really about, it's not just about pointing things out, though you have to do that. But it's really about pointing the way. It's about alternatives to systems. So 
if the system wants to punish wound, then offer a counter sign to that, which is, well, what if we healed wound? What if we attended to injury rather than banish and ostracize injury? So, you know, so if you want to address some kind of systemic issue like mass incarceration, I think that's what you do. You, you counterpose it with some other way of imagining. And I just want to review for a minute the way Homeboy works. A lot of the people at Homeboy's had terrible childhoods with, you know, abusive or missing parents. Then they did terrible things to other people. And then they spent years, sometimes decades in prison. And then they come to you. And then what happens? Well, you have to provide a safe place. So that, that's the initial thing for most vexing social dilemma, homelessness, mental health issues, disaffected youth, and gang violence and returning citizens. You present a place that's safe, and then people can inhabit their truth in a place that holds them and cherishes them. So if it's true that the traumatized will cause trauma, then it's equally true that the cherished will be able to find their way to the joy there is in cherishing themselves and others. So it offers a certain kind of resilience that's really newfound for people. And then they leave us after 18 months, knowing that a healing ends in the graveyard, but you can do essential, foundational, fundamental healing, and that's what happens here in their 18 months here. Then they're connected, they're engaged, and they're, they're kind of vital in this own kind of uh, relational wholeness, we would call it here. You get the title of, of all your books from the guys, uh, sometimes the girls at Homeboy. This title, The Whole Language, was something a former gang member in the book you call him Mario, that he told you about being, as he put it, locked up in county and having a cellmate, a Russian kid named Peter. Tell us about the title. Yeah, so I had uh, testified on this guy's behalf because they wanted to deport him to Uzbekistan. <laughs> he came here with his mom when he was nine. And he got into a Latino gang. So when I came back after testifying for him and he didn't get deported, um, in fact, he's working here now. So I saw one of his homies. I said, do you know this guy, David? And he goes, oh, my God, Russian boy. We call him Russian boy. And he said, um, hey, check this out. We were cellies at Men's Central Jail. And every evening he'd walk out to the payphone. He'd talk to his mom and he spoke Russian. And he said, damn, gee, he spoke the whole language, which was his way of saying fluent. He was fluent. So uh, when he said that, I went, wow, this is great. Because what, what if we were to aspire to a certain fluency, you know, the whole language, which is to see, which is I call therapeutic mysticism, where you see the whole person and you get underneath things and you're not tripped up by behavior. The goal is not a, be, a behaving community, but a, but a belonging community. Sometimes I, I glom onto these things and then I work backwards. So I go, oh, I like that, the whole language. What is the whole language? That's kind of a, how I posit it. And, and then the subtitle is The Power of Extravagant Tenderness. Yeah, I have to ask you about that. Extravagant tenderness. Is, isn't ordinary tenderness a, enough? Yeah, except I, I try to get uh, highfalutin. <laughs> I'm a Jesuit, so Jesuits get highfalutin. 
but you know, part of it is to, to say it's not ordinary tenderness that it's more. And again, I talked theologically that, you know, how do we move from the, you know, the doom and gloom of the God that we've settled for to not a gloomy God, but a, a roomy one, one that is spacious. And so, and so there you are, you know, it, you know, you receive the tender glance, you become the tender glance, you try to see as God sees, and you, you kind of understand the depth of what people are contending with, you know? So, so what about love the sinner, hate the sin? Yeah, that's kind of an old chestnut that we've, we've liked to, I, I don't think sin is a very helpful thing. You know, I, I, I remember once I was, uh, at a conference and a guy got up and he was proposing a program to deal with gang violence. And I remember he, at one point, he pounded on the podium and he said, look, people, this works. <laughs> and I remember I wrote in my program, yeah, but I bet it doesn't help. <laughs> and, and I remember writing that and then thinking to myself, not everything that works helps, but everything that helps works. And the notion of sin and the kind of, you know, love, you know, the sinner, but not the sin, all that stuff is very, not very unsophisticated. I think probably for, you know, a thousand years, it probably worked in terms of controlling people, but it never helped. It never invited people to some spacious view of God. I, and I remember thinking the other day, even that, that I think tenet is true. Not everything that works helps. But if you invited people to some larger love, that helps. But it also works if, you're, if your goal is to somehow control behavior. But the sin thing has really, we've kind of backed the sin horse. <laughs> and it's a way of people not really coming to terms with that people are unshakably good and everybody belongs to us. Now, what does that action mean? What does it mean that a guy assaults an aged Asian woman on the streets of San Francisco? What is that telling you? If it's just Asian hate crime and if it's just racist, then you don't get beyond your moral outrage. You don't get underneath it where you say, oh, wow, does a healthy, whole, well person ever do that ever? No. Well, then maybe we heal people. Maybe we try to. Uh, include people. Maybe we try to deliver mental health services in a timely and appropriate way. So that feels more sophisticated to me in a good way. Mm -hmm. In a lower key, there's a lot of wonderful stories in this book as in your others. One of my favorites is you describe bringing a couple of homeboys with you to give a talk to a thousand school superintendents, I think it is. And you have your guy sit in the front row and one of them, you call him Eddie. You say he's been at homeboy for four months. He says to you in the elevator afterwards, you know what I love most about homeboy. And what, what was his answer? Yeah. So we were waiting for the elevator. There were two other people with us. And so he, he's a little tiny guy. I just saw him the other day. I hadn't seen him for a while and just tiny. And he was hanging onto my, my shoulder and we're waiting for the elevator for the parking structure to arrive. And he was leaning his head on my, on my arm. And I remember saying in the book, he was, he wasn't tired. He was tender. 
And then he, and we're both staring at the elevator and he says, you know what I love the most about homeboy? And I said, what? He says that you're not embarrassed by us. <laughs> and I remember it just kind of slayed me. I, I remember I, right away, I, my eyes just welled up with tears and we just stared at the elevator. And, and so I, I kind of riff on that, you know, about, I think I was talking about God at the time, about how God, the God we have, the one we settle for is, is embarrassed by us at cocktail parties, but <laughs> and wants to avoid us. But the God we actually have is never embarrassed by us, if I recall it correctly. <laughs> but then there's another kind of story you tell. In the new book, you describe a visit to Pelican Bay State Prison. It's California's supermax. It's where the state puts the people they consider the worst of the worst. They call them incorrigibles. The guys who are there, many of them have been there for decades. Many will be there for the rest of their lives. Tell us about your visit to Pelican Bay. Well, I, I think I, I gave a talk or I did a mass. And, uh, but the, the story that I tell actually didn't happen to me. It was about a concert pianist with a little combo who, uh, you know, gave a concert. And uh, so they had like 80 guys in there with guards and, uh, and the chaplain was telling me about it. And he said that they, before too long, the, everybody was just weeping. And so they finished and the concert pianist had a kind of a Q and A and they said, do you have any questions? And nobody could speak because they were just sobbing from how beautiful this was and, and a guy got up and and uh, he the only question he could eke out was why and and then the the pianist started crying and he says because he knew exactly what the question meant he said because you are deserving of beauty and you are worthy and there is no difference between you and me that's why and I found it very powerful because I knew this guy who asked the question. And so uh, it was kind of a reference point. I, I kind of spent more time on it, but it was that we're all the same. We're all, we all were born wanting the same things. We all born really with the same last name. We belong to each other. And that's why. So if people want to support Homeboy Industries, what can they do? Well, then go to our website, homeboyindustries.org, and especially during the holidays coming up, you can order all manner of things to send for Christmas gifts. Uh, you can come by and visit. You can volunteer. We're, you know, tutors and the like. And we have all sorts of businesses that you can, electronic recycling and restaurants all over the place. And so you can help that way. Gregory Boyle's new book is The Whole Language, The Power of Extravagant Tenderness. Father Greg, thanks for everything you do, and thanks for talking with us Thank today. Thank you, John. It's always good to be with you. Stay well. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. 
D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. We'll be right back.